Matthew chapter 27 and verse 62 says this, On the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. That next day is after Jesus had been put in the tomb. Saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people that he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet, and worshipped him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to come together this morning and worship you. Father, we ask, Lord, that this morning you would have your way with us. God, we pray that this morning you would deal with our hearts. We are grateful for the opportunity to come together and worship you in freedom, in truth, and in spirit. God, I acknowledge before these people, and most importantly before You, that I need You this morning. I need You to touch me to preach Your Word in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. God, help me not to simply be going at the heads of men, but through the power of the Spirit to the hearts of men. God, this morning, may You reveal Yourself to us. Help us to see Your Son for who He is. I pray that sinners would be saved, that the saints would be encouraged, and above all things, that you would be lifted up and exalted. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus, to anybody that cares to really research it, is one of the most documented, provable acts of history the world has ever seen. I could spend all morning on just proving the resurrection of Jesus. The reality that had He not risen from the dead, then what would cause these twelve disciples to preach that He had risen from the dead until they were killed themselves? These men who had turned into cowards the days previous, who had went into hiding, this man Peter who had denied the Lord three times, saying he didn't even know who He was. 
What would possibly cause these men to leave their cowardice hiding and then preach with boldness to their last dying breath that Jesus rose from the dead except for the fact that He did? Some say, well, they just said that and they were lying and, and that, uh, because they didn't want the disciples to get the body that Rome took His body. Well, if that was the case, then why didn't Rome bring Jesus out by the heels of his dead feet and hang him in front of the crowds when everybody was preaching that he rose from the dead? They would have said, here's your risen Lord. But they had no Christ to do that with because he had risen from the grave. I'm not, even, I'm not preaching on that this morning. But the fact is that Jesus did rise from the grave. And sometimes, somewhere, every one of us has to deal with the question of who is Jesus? Even the most liberal, anti-God, anti-Bible people in this world that have any sense about Him at all have come to grips with, have admitted publicly there was a man named Jesus. There was a man who lived... When the Bible says he lived, in the place the Bible says that he lived, in the time the Bible says that he lived, whose name was Jesus. And people, some believed he was the Messiah, some believed he was a fraud, some believed he was a prophet. There was different viewpoints of who he was. But the historical fact that Jesus Christ existed and lived on earth is a historical fact. It's undisputable. Anybody that tries to tell you different has not spent three minutes looking at any real evidence. The question is not, did Jesus exist? The question is, who was He? It's a question that Jesus asked His disciples. He said, who do the crowds say that I am? They said, well, some say you're a prophet. At some times, some people said He was mad. But Jesus looked at him and said this. He said, who do you say that I am? Pilate asked the question when he brought Jesus before the Jews and before the Pharisees and the scribes who were wanting Pilate to put him to death. Pilate asked the question, what shall I do with this man called Jesus? It's a question that every one of us must answer at some stage in our life. And to do nothing with him is at least to decide he's not God. So this morning, I want to preach on this thought that came to me. Who is this man that defies the grave? Who is this man that death could not hold, that the grave could not do away with, that hell could not snuff out, that religion could not tame? Who is this man that we celebrate this morning who rose from the grave? In the book of Acts chapter 24, Jesus is walking after His resurrection with a couple of the disciples and he said this, he, he said the, the Bible says that he opened the Scriptures and began to explain all things concerning himself. The Scriptures at that time was the Old Testament. So the Old Testament tells us about Jesus. The first thing that I want to say this morning about this man, who is this man who defies the grave? He is the prophesied Messiah. Now I want to ask the question, if you were to send somebody that uh, to a foreign land. And this person was supposed to have a vast impact on this foreign land, but the reality was nobody there knew him. And you had the responsibility of making sure that when he shows up, 
somebody's going to know who he is. What would you do? You would send word to the people that when my ambassador comes, uh, he'll be driving this, he'll be wearing this. This will be his name. This is what he will look like. You would send some descriptions about who he was. Can I tell you this morning that God wants the world to know who his son is? And when God sent his son into this world, he did not send his son into this world without any clues about who he was. As a matter of fact, he went to every extent possible to say, when my son shows up, here's how you will know he's the one. You've ever been asked the question, well, how do you know Jesus is the only way? Isn't Christianity just like all the other religions of the world? And don't we all worship the same basic God and and the same basic principles of a good God and a bad devil? The answer to that question is no. We don't all worship the same God. The God of the Bible is vastly different from the God of Islam. He is vastly different from the multitudes of God of Confucianism. He is vastly different from the idea of Buddhism, which really says everything is God, and if everything is God, then nothing is really God at all. The God of the Bible is the eternal Creator God. The One who claims to be the Judge of heaven and earth, of which every single person in this world, including each of you under the sound of my voice, will stand before Him and give an account for your life. That's the God of the Bible, and He's vastly different from every other God, small g, that this world has ever come up with. And if God wanted this world to know who His Son would be, God would say, here's how you'll know. And I want you to see something about Jesus Who is this man who defies the grave? He is the prophesied Christ. In Acts chapter 17, Paul uh, began to argue from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. You see, God told us, here's how you know who my son will be. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, you don't have to turn there, you don't have to go there, but in Genesis 3.15, God said that the, the Savior of the world, that His Son, the Messiah, would be born of the seed of the woman. Now, you might say, well, hey, everybody's born of a woman. There's never been a man that's given birth. But in the Bible, the seed always refers to the man. The man is the one who gives the seed, and the woman's the one who provides the egg. Everywhere else in the Bible, it calls men, or even daughters, the seed of the man. For example, Isaac is the seed of Abraham. Joseph is the seed of Jacob. God told Abraham, I will make your seed, your descendants, as basically as the stars in the sky, the sand on the shore. The only time in the entire Bible that a human being is ever referred to as the seed of a woman is of Christ. It is the virgin birth. It is the one who had no earthly father. From Genesis chapter 3, God said, here's one of the ways you're going to know. My son will be the one who has no earthly father. I will be his father. He will be born of a virgin. Now, that's pretty specific. There are some who uh, foolishly try to argue that did not happen. But God did not stop there. You remember Noah in the flood, and Noah came with his three sons. The whole entire 
world can be traced back to Noah's three sons. Well, God eliminated two-thirds of the world when He said that His son would be from the lineage of Shem. He later then said that His son would be of the descendants of Abraham. So now He cuts out a whole entire group of people from the line of Shem. He says, but not only will He be of the descendant of Abraham, but He will come from the line of Isaac, from the line of Jacob. And then He said, from the tribe of Judah. Jacob had 12 sons. God said, when my son comes, here's how you'll know that it's him. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Not only will he be of the seed of Jacob, but he will come from one of Jacob's twelve sons. He said, but not only will he be of the tribe of Judah, he will be of the family of Jesse. Now, Jesse had eight boys. If you remember the story of uh, Daniel, when Daniel was anointed king, he was the last son to come. God said later, my son will be of the seed of David. Now, we're getting pretty specific, aren't we? We're getting pretty specific, at least pretty clear about where supposedly this man's going to come from. And then we see some other very incredibly specific predictions in Psalm 22, which was written around 1012 B.C. God said, my son will be crucified. His hands and his feet will be pierced. The interesting thing about that, uh, the, the prediction in Psalm 22, which is, which is easily uh, able to prove was written around 1000 B.C., is that the, the prophecy that Christ would be crucified, which we all know took place, is interesting because crucifixion didn't even exist then. When the text was originally written, what did it mean he would be pierced through his hands and his feet? The people did not know. There was no type of death that took place like that yet. The Romans invented crucifixion, some argue 600, some 800, but it is fair to say at least 600 years later is the first recorded time in the history of the world that crucifixion took place. So God said, not only will my son come from the lines of these men, not only will my son come of the line of David, of the tribe of Judah, but he will be crucified. His hands and his feet will be pierced. And then in Psalm 41 and in Zechariah chapter 11, it said that he will be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Not 29 pieces of silver, not 31 pieces of silver, but 30 pieces. And not 30 pieces of gold, not 30 pieces of copper, not 30 coins, but 30 pieces of silver. Now that's pretty exact. It is incredibly evident. God said, I want you to know who my son is. I don't want you to miss it. I'm going to give you every possible reason to know this is my son. Not only would he be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, but the silver would specifically, as prophesied, be thrown on the floor. Not thrown on the table, but thrown on the floor and then used to buy a field. Now we're getting pretty specific. Micah chapter 5, 2 said, not only will all of these things be true about him, but he will be born in Bethlehem. And then you would say, well, how will we know when he's born? Malachi chapter 3 said that God's son would be born before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. When did the destruction in the temple in Jerusalem occur? In 70 A.D. Now, I could go on all morning. I'm not going to. There are over three hundred prophecies in the Old Testament 
that were written about the Messiah. It is incredibly clear. God said, I want you to know who my son is. I don't want you to miss it. Over 300 prophecies about who the Son of God would be. Now, I want to talk for just a real quick moment about something that's called the science of mathematical probability. You see, the reason that prophecy is an indication of the divine nature of this book is because of how impossible it would be to be so exact about future predictions and to nail every single one of them. Anybody can make predictions, but having those predictions fulfilled is vastly different. Now, we're talking about past. We're talking about history. I just want, but I want us to grab a hold of this. I want you to see the impact of this reality. Could you imagine if somebody today predicted a world religious leader a thousand years from now? Predicted what family he would come from? Predicted where he would be born? Predicted how he would die? How incredibly difficult would that be? But that's what this book does about Jesus Christ. Most of these predictions were beyond Jesus' control. There are some who will say, well, Jesus was just, he knew the predictions, he knew the Old Testament, he wanted everyone to think he was the man. But how does someone arrange to be born of the tribe of David, the tribe of Judah, the seed of David? How does someone arrange to be born in Bethlehem when their parents don't actually even live there? How does somebody arrange their own death, especially by crucifixion, with two others hanging by them? How does someone arrange to have his own crucifiers gamble for his clothing? How does someone arrange to be betrayed in advance by a friend by 30 pieces of silver? How does someone arrange to have the executioners carry out the regular practice of breaking the legs of two victims on either side, but not their own? You see, it might be possible for someone to fake one or two of the messianic prophecies. Not 300 of them. Not 300 of them. The science of probability attempts to determine the chance that a given event will occur. Peter Stoner, who is the professor emeritus of science at Westmont College, has calculated the probability of one man fulfilling eight, just eight, eight of the 300 prophecies. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes representing more than 600 university students. After the students weighed all the factors, discussed each prophecy at length, and came up with their estimates, Stoner then took their estimates and made them even more conservative. And then he encouraged other skeptics and scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were more than fair. Finally, he submitted his figures for review to the Committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. And upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. 
Now, what are those calculations that he found? For example, they figured that here's how you... Uh, if, if the prophecy says that the man would be born in Bethlehem, they took from the time that that prophecy was made all the way to current day time, they took the number of people who have lived in Bethlehem versus the number of people who have lived in the entire world. And they found that the odds of one man randomly being born in Bethlehem is about 1 in 300,000. And when you take that and compound it with the next prophecy and the next prophecy and the next prophecy, they came up with this interesting figure for just eight prophecies. Just eight. That the chance of one man fulfilling eight of the 300 prophecies is 1 to 10 in the 17th power. Now, those are numbers we don't hardly figure. We can't hardly understand what that means. It's 17 zeros, and what's that look like? It's kind of like our national debt. <laughs> but here's a mental picture that changed. It helped me to see it. The, if you took Texas and covered the whole state in dollar coins, but not just covered it, but covered it two feet deep in dollar coins. And then you blindfolded a man and said there's an X on one of these coins. You can walk through the entire state of Texas on top of two feet of dollar coins, but you can only pick up one. The chance of that blindfolded man picking up the right coin is the chance of one man meeting eight, eight of the prophecy. Amen. Yes, he is. 300, though. God said, this is how you'll know who my son is. Can I say without any religious tone behind it, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact that is perhaps the most proved fact in the whole world. That's who this man is who defies the grave. He is the prophesied Messiah. He's the one who is not held by the rules of this world. He's the one who works in things and in ways vastly different than we could ever imagine. Even death could not hold Him. This is who the Son of God is. This is who the Christian faith is built upon. The risen Savior, Jesus Christ. This is who we celebrate this morning. We're not celebrating church. We're not celebrating necessarily Christianity. We're not celebrating a denomination. We are celebrating the risen Son of God this morning. Who else is He? He is the friend of sinners. Look with me at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 10. Who is this man that defies the grave? He's the one the Scriptures told us would come. We also see something that's vastly different about Him from every other. Now it happened, as Jesus said at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Him and His disciples. And when Jesus saw it, they said to His disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? We see that Jesus was a friend to those that most leaders are never friends of. He's different than every other leader of the world. He's different than every other one that's ever come before. 
our natural instinct is to do away with and to distance ourselves from and to get rid of those that are, that are the worst amongst us, that are guilty of crime and, and sin and wickedness. But Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor. He said He came to save the lost, to seek and save that which was lost. This morning, Jesus is so vastly different even than the religious institution of the modern-day Christian church. Many amongst us will even talk about how nice of an idea it is to go help those that are in need and, and to go minister to the homeless and to reach out to those who are in prison. But we do little more than talk about it. Not so with Jesus. Jesus goes. He left the splendor of heaven to come into a sin-soaked world and lead the way and live a righteous life before us. And the Bible says He set down the sinners. Thank God that He came and sat down with this old sinner boy here. When my life was absolutely ravaged and I was a wicked of a man as you'll ever have met, Jesus came to me and He said, I love you and I have a plan for your life. And when I surrendered to the will of God for my life, it changed me forever from the inside out. And for 13 years I've been living my life trying to tell people there is a real God in heaven. His Son is Jesus Christ. He is the prophesied Messiah. And this morning He is the friends of sinners. Doesn't matter how far you are from God this morning. Doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you've turned God away. It doesn't matter what you're guilty of. He has a power to change your life forever. And He loves you with a perfect love. And He is the friend of sinners. Who is this man who defies the grave? Not only is He the prophesied Christ, not only is He a friend of sinners, but He is the temple cleanser. You know what I'm about to tell you was the thing that broke my heart and began to change me that same day that I got saved. Look at Matthew chapter 21. I'm not making you move far. We've been in Matthew most of the time. Look at Matthew 21 verses 12 and 13. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. This is actually the second time that Jesus did this in his life. It's recorded in John chapter 2 that he did the exact same thing. It's a picture we don't see too often. Many of the pictures we see of Jesus are very accurate. They're very fair. They're correct. Jesus with children on His lap. Jesus with a woman at the well. Jesus on the cross. Jesus raising from the grave. But this is a picture you don't see too often. Jesus inside the church with a whip in His hand driving people out of it. The Bible says that's exactly what He did. Who was Jesus driving out? The religious leaders who are using the people to get wealthy. The religious leaders who had abandoned a true devotion to God and were nothing but, but false men masquerading as men who loved God, who were getting rich off the backs of the weak and the poor, who had prostituted the Word of God to their own gain. Jesus drove them right out. I remember when I saw that, the day I got saved, 
a preacher was preaching on this text, and for the first time in my life I saw a God that was fair. You see, my whole life I had been, I was raised up in Clearwater, Kansas. I'm not making any statements about any of the direct churches there, but I was raised up around a bunch of people who said they were Christians. They got drunk like I got drunk, got high like I got high, had sex like I had sex. It's called fornication. But supposedly, I was a terrible person going to hell, and they were these great Christians going to heaven. Because they showed up and went to church. I saw straight through that baloney. And this morning, if that's you, God sees straight through that baloney too, sir. He'll judge it. He's in the business of clean, cleaning out the temple. For the first time in my life, I saw a God that was fair. I mean, I knew that I was a wicked person. You didn't have to... I knew it. But the idea that somehow God would punish me and not punish all these fakes, just, I, I, I didn't buy it. And all of a sudden, I saw a God that was fair. A God that judges all sin. A God that is not duped by our religious actions. A God that is not mistaken just because someone shows up to church and kicks a leg and raises a hand in the air or puts some money in the offering plate, but a God who looks straight past all of that into the heart of a man and knows where you stand. And a God who judges it. You see, I had always thought of a God that just kind of pushed their sins away. Somehow they got a free pass because they were willing to show up and put money in the offering plate, and I wasn't. But I saw for the first time, and the Bible teaches us a God that's fair. A God who desires to get that filth right out of the church. And I want to say He will. He is a God that cleanses the temple. This morning, if you are like me, and you have ever used hypocrite as an excuse in your life not to surrender to God, you better stop it this morning, and you better realize it's not God's fault. There is a God in heaven, and just because this world might be filled with people who profess God with their mouth and deny Him with their life does not mean that Jesus is not real, and it does not give you a free pass to live however you want to live and blame your wickedness and your sins on somebody else. You too will answer to God, and so will they. He's the temple cleanser. He's the true God who deals with all sin. One of the reasons I believe that Jesus is the friend of sinners. You don't have to convince them they're sinners. We live in a day and time just as Jesus was in His, where so many people are so religious, they think that somehow they get a free pass on their sin. They're the ones who make statements like this. Well, everybody sins. They're the ones who will leave this place and excuse away their sin that God was trying to deal with this morning under the contents of, nobody's perfect. You'll answer to God, my friend. And when you stand before Him and try to let that baloney flow out of your mouth, I believe you won't even be able to speak. It won't go anywhere with Him. You can throw that up to me all day long. That's fine. Uh, you're right. Nobody's perfect. I get it. But God commands us to repent. Jesus commands every man everywhere to repent and follow after Him. And He is the temple cleanser. Not only is He the prophesied Messiah and the friend of sinners, 
the temple cleanser. He is the redeeming Savior. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Who is this man that defies the grave? Who is this man that the entire Christian world hangs upon? I have said it this way before. My entire life, I have staked in another man's life. My entire purpose, I have staked in another man's purpose. Even my death, I have trusted with another man's death. This is Christianity. And who is this man that defies the grave? In verse 7 it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. This morning, He is the redeeming Savior. Now you've got to understand what redeeming means. What is redemption? A lot of times we use that word redemption in sports. We are a sports-driven society. And when somebody fails and you want to give them a chance to like redeem themselves, we say they have a chance at redemption. But that word really comes from the purer meaning that deals with being rebought. It means that you are purchased. It means that because of some reason you became a slave to another. And there's a price, a legal price on your life. So that no man, no woman could simply walk in and say to you or say to your master, I'm taking him with me. No, I own him. The Redeemer is the one that comes in and says this. What is the price for this slave? Now there are a lot of ways in the Old Testament that somebody could have became a slave. Maybe they made a commitment and see they didn't quite have bankruptcy like we have bankruptcy these days. People had to pay their bills. And maybe they made a commitment and did not follow through on their commitment. If they were unable to make their commitment, who they owed money to had the legal right to say, you're going to have to work for me. Become my servant. Until it's paid. Not forever. Not for the rest of your life. But until it's paid. Now you could redeem that person by coming in and saying, well, what's the debt? $50,000, $100,000, what does he owe? And the Redeemer would say, here's the money. I put it on the table. I'm buying him or her back. That's redemption. Now, I want to read this. What does it say? In him we have redemption through his blood. We see here that the payment for our redemption is his blood. How can this be? God help us to see the message of the Gospel this morning. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Can I tell you this? That the greatest sin a man can commit, there are a lot of really terrible sins. Horrible, wretched sins. My heart aches even now as I think about naming some of them. But the worst sin a man can commit is not a sin against another person. It is a sin against God. It is to look the God who created you in the face. It is to look the Lord Jesus in the eyes, spiritually speaking, if you will, and say, I don't care about the cross. I don't care that you shed your blood on my behalf and I will not follow you. 
That's the worst sin a man could commit. And many of you are guilty of it this morning under the sound of my voice. The sin of rebelling against God is a sin punishable by death. It is a sin that's not only punishable by death, but it's punishable by what the Bible calls the second death. It is an eternal death where you are alive yet in constant torment on multitudes of levels. Torment in the body, in the flames and in the pain of hell. Torment in the soul, the place of the mind, the will and the emotions where you are reminded of every time that you sat in front of a preacher like me and he pleaded with you to get saved and yet you said no. You'll remember every single time in your life that you turned away the love of God. Torment. Torment in your spirit knowing that forever you're cut off from the living God. See, how could a loving God send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. What God does is He puts His stamp of, of approval on your choice here on earth. He says, if you want to live with me, then I will validate that and we will live together for in heaven. But if you want to live without me, then you can live without me. God will not force anybody to serve Him. And if you want to reject God, God will say to you, your will be done. That's really what hell is. It's God looking at man and saying, your will be done. You want life without me? You don't think you need me? Time is no more. I have warned you and I have warned you and I have pleaded with you and I have tried to wrap my arms around you and I have did everything I can to show you I'm real. And yet you refuse me. Because you care too much what people thought. Because you care too much about what it might do to your pocketbook. Because you care too much about how it might affect this area of your life or that area of your life. And now I look at you and I say, your will be done. That's what hell is. Now here's what the Bible says. We were redeemed by His blood. You see, the price for what we've done is blood. It's punishable by death. Rebellion against God is the most wicked thing that could ever take place. But here's what God said. God said, I don't want you to have to pay it. God said, I'm going to send my son and he's going to pay the bill. That's what he's going to do. He's going to step in and he's going to do what no one else would. Now, here is the difference. Who is this man who defies the grave? He defies every law of this world. In our world, we are people who say, make them pay. They're the ones that did it. Make them pay. You did the crime, pay the time. God said, no, the crime is terrible, but the penalty is too much. God said, I'll pay it on your behalf. What's the price? What is the price of redemption? The price was blood. Jesus said, I'll shed it. I'll go to the cross and I will shed my last drop of blood so that I can say, I can rightfully redeem this world. He is the redeeming Savior. There is no one else who would ever do that for us. Earthly kings do not die for their people. Earthly kings send their people to die on their behalf. But our king said, I'll die in the place of them that they might have life. This is the man who defies the grave. He defies everything we've ever known. 
There are so many who don't come to God because they can't understand how could God love somebody like me? How is that fair? Why would God change my life? Why would God save me? How can God do this or that? He has paid the price through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He loves us with a perfect love. He is the redeeming Savior. And there's none like Him. This is the one who defies the grave. This is the one whom we worship. And finally this morning... Who is this one who defies the grave? He is the risen Lord. He is the risen Lord. In His coming to life, in His resurrection from the dead, He settled it once and for all. He is who He said He is. That's who He is. He is the risen Lord the King of kings, the righteous judge of all the earth. And He rose from the dead. I'm telling you this morning, I just pray I could get out of me what's in me. The only way we cannot believe in Him is if we choose to remain in our blindness. 300 prophecies, eight of them that would take one in 10 to the 17th power to even come true all prophesied, documented, historically, before He ever attained to this earth? The evidence that He died and rose from the grave? There's never been one like Him, and there will never be another. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was in the beginning with God. He was there when the heavens were hung and the earth was made and and, and everything was formed. He was there. That is the risen Lord this morning. How could we not serve Him? How could we not surrender to Him in church? Thank God. He is the righteous judge. He is the returning Lord. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Almighty God. You take all the mighty people in this world, you take all the mighty, little m, the mighty devils in this world, you take all the enemies of this world, all the forces of this world, and wrap them up together and let them come against the church and the gates of hell will not prevail because we serve the one and only true great I Am, the Almighty God, the King of kings, the risen Lord. This is that man who defies the grave. And this is our hope this morning. He is the giver of life. Christianity is not a jump into the dark. It's not a blind leap of faith. Anybody who's ever said that probably hasn't spent more than three minutes in a book studying in their life about this thing. Those are the lame excuses we make to justify why we don't do anything with Christ. But can I say, as for you, you're without excuse. You just sat through 45 minutes that you can never do away with. He is the risen Lord. Last question I'll ask this morning. I am done. But is He your Lord? Is He your Lord? The book of James says that even...
could demons believe in God? Even the demons believe in God. And they tremble. At least they have more sense than many who say they believe in God. They got enough sense to tremble. You know, just because you believe in God doesn't mean you're saved. Matter of fact, in James, what it does say, it says, you believe in God, well, you do good. I mean, the Bible says, he that says there is no God is a fool. That's what the Bible says. So, you believe in God, great. You've graduated from being a fool to a lost man or a lost woman who says you believe in God. That doesn't make you saved. Jesus asked this question. Why do you call me Lord? And not do the things I say. Do you ever realize to say, Lord, no, is in and of itself to deny His Lordship? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that many will come and call me Lord. Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? Jesus said, I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You who work iniquity. That means live the lifestyle of sin. I'm not saying this morning you will never sin if you're a Christian. But you mark my words, and I say it unashamedly on the authority of the Word of God. You will sin less. You will hate sin. It will make you feel filthy when you do it. You'll feel ashamed that you would sin against God. A God who loved you and was willing to save you? See, that's repentance. That's the attitude in and of itself that sin is wrong. And then you have a desire to repent of that and follow God. But if you have no repentance in your life, if you just decide, well, I'll keep the rules that I feel like keeping. I can do the church thing. I can do that. Church is kind of fun. they got a nice band. I suppose I can give a little bit of money because, um, you know, it helps do things. They do nice stuff. But when it comes right down to it, and you want to sin, you got no check in your spirit whatsoever, you just do what you want. I'll go my way. And I'll tell that preacher everybody sins so he can keep his mouth shut. I'll ask that preacher if he's perfect. If that's you, my friend, you better be on fearful ground. God sees right through your phony baloney. He is the temple cleanser. Your job isn't to shut me down and to get me to back down. Your job is to be right with God. Good luck shutting Him down. He is the eternal Creator God. And He is the risen Lord. So I asked the question this morning, is He your Lord? Is He yours? Not do you believe in Him, not do you really believe He's the Son of God? Is He your Lord? Do you follow Him? First, I ask you to come. Father, I pray that you move all across this room. Jesus, have your way. So you thought you had to keep this up. All the world.